0: We're in this worship series, right, where we've been
1: reading through the epistle called Colossians for several weeks. We're returning to that tonight after last week's bottle episode on Philemon. And we have come to a part of that epistle that is, in a word, awful. Just think of all the content considerations, all the trigger warnings you've ever heard at Galileo Church and combine them all. Heteronormativity, patriarchy unto misogyny, the re-inscribing of enslavement, it's all in here. And here is the dilemma for us. If we skip this part of the epistle, it feels like an admission that it has power over us, that it is too much for us, that it is too hard for us to handle. We just pretend it's not there. But if we read it, out loud in this space, if we speak its reality into this safe space, we risk inflicting the suffering and the damage that it can do all over again. I'm going to tell you, I for one hate having these words in my mouth. I do not want our children to hear me say them. I don't want my kids to hear me say them. The spoken word is powerful. God created worlds by voice alone. There is really no reason to recreate the world of this text tonight by speaking it into our reality here. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the words on the screen. It's just one screen's worth, yeah? And then we're just going to sit here for a minute. And you can read them to yourself if you want, or you can close your eyes and enjoy a moment of serenity we won't judge. The text for tonight is Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. If someone other than myself had assigned this text for worship and for preaching, I'd have thrown a royal hissy fit. I'd have gone to my shelves to find my copy of Texts of Terror literary feminist readings of biblical narratives by the inimitable Phyllis Tribble to make my case. My case that the Bible, this collection of testimony concerning the nature and character of God left to us by our ancestors in faith is sometimes so toxic, so poisonous to human flourishing that parts of it deserve not only our skepticism, but our scorn, our refusal to grant the words, the power ascribed to sacred text. Nothing sacred in these verses, I'd have said. It's profane. It's profanity all the way down. Nothing redeemable about a text that has been so thoroughly weaponized in Christian history that has stolen so much agency and dignity from beautiful human beings created in the image of God, that has done so much violence to generations of God's children while granting unearned, unchecked power to those who already sit at the top of Privilege Mountain. I won't do it, I'd have said. You can't make me. But here we are. Because some weeks ago, I remembered again that as a church, we had not lately attended much to the non-narratival epistolary theologies of the New Testament. In other words, we hadn't heard Paul's voice in a while. That is to say, we hadn't heard from the church's first theologian, the brilliant and well-educated rabbi who unlocked the mystery of the cosmic significance of that crucified carpenter's son from Nazareth. Church, we stand to lose quite a lot if we lose Paul's voice, especially our sense of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully when Jesus is not here to be followed. What it means to hope and wait for the fulfillment of promises that seem to have been a long time coming. What it means practically daily to embody the love that Jesus practiced to carry his living spirit in our minds and in our hands, our guts and hearts, faith, hope, and love. Paul, had, Paul has quite a lot to teach us about all those things. But it's a risk, you know, to let Paul have the floor. I mean, nine times out of ten, he's going to dazzle you with his prayers, his poetry, his prophetic challenge, his gentle affection and vulnerability, his commanding rhetoric, all in service of the gospel to which he has dedicated his every waking hour since meeting the risen Lord on that road to Damascus. And then one time out of 10, that cranky son of a birch is gonna lift his skirts and pop a squat right in the middle of worship, drop a big old smelly deuce somewhere between the preacher and the worship architect and leave us to clean up the mess. Tonight is the one out of 10. 95 verses in the epistle to the Colossians, nine of them suck hairy balls. And I think I would say that's one reason it felt important to me back when I made this worship schedule to leave these verses in for our worshipful work together. Because they're dangerous and we know it. And ignoring them won't make the damage they've done go away. Instructions for household conduct, like the ones here in Colossians 3 and a little bit of 4, appear many places, both in and out of the Bible. Patriarchal way of ordering a household with a paterfamilias at the tippy top of a pyramid built out of human beings in his care and and under his control was the accepted way to order one's home in Greco-Roman culture. The empire endorsed it. The empire depended on it to keep social and economic stability in all the lands it colonized, a place for everyone and everyone in their place. is a basic requirement for imperial world conquering. So Christians at that time, represented to us now largely by Paul's voice in scripture, might have been preaching a radical gospel of inclusion, the inversion of hierarchies, the way Jesus said it would be in the reign of God, the last being first and the first being last and all that. But the preaching of that gospel did not negate the reality that their lives on the ground operated within the framework of Caesar's limited imagination and unlimited dominion. It has been argued that Christians adopted the Roman paterfamilias household ordering for the sake of survival. Is it existing as a persecuted minority, claiming allegiance to a leader who had been executed by the state for the crime of treason? Well, that's hard enough without drawing attention to yourselves by upsetting the economy and the social order. You might do better to blend in the best you can. Keep your subversive streak on the down low. Think of Christianity in those days a couple thousand years ago as a tiny, fragile flame. If the emperor gets huffy, he can just blow that house down. And it's all she wrote for Jesus and the Jesus freaks who follow his teachings and await his return. The household codes of the New Testament could be part of a strategy to shield their nascent faith from the neighbor's prying eyes. What I think Paul and the very early Christians did not understand back in the day is that oceans rise and empires fall, and people change, and the way we regard each other changes as well, because despite all appearances to the contrary, God is sometimes getting a little bit more of what God wants. The patriarchy has not been completely burned down, but more and more gender hierarchies are dissolving, and children's health and well-being are more or less protected, and the enslavement of human beings is mostly illegal. I'm not saying it's all done. The lingering effects of the patriarchal poison in our system are still causing violent and painful convulsions in some parts of the world and in some families. Maybe even your family of origin, maybe even in your own psyche right now. I'm just saying that I don't think Paul ever imagined we'd be reading his letter to the Christians in Colossae in church two millennia after he put pen to parchment. I don't think he intended to ordain a household code that would remain 100% intact in the imaginations of Christian people after all this time. And I don't think he knew his words would be used to do such violence to so many. To kickstart and sustain a system of enslavement in this country, for example, that relied on Paul's logic here and elsewhere to reinstate a reality in which people could be bought and sold as property. Or to diminish women's agency in their own homes, in their own marriages, in their own churches, in their own lives. Or to erase, erase the experiences of non-cis het households from the Christian imagination. Or to prop up a system of power that has been responsible for so much abuse, so much trauma, so much perversion of love, twisting it into something dictatorial and doctrinaire and dangerous. No, he didn't mean to. But the image that keeps coming to mind for me is this. By leaving us these nine toxic verses, it's like he left a loaded gun sitting out on the kitchen table. It has wounded and killed before and it has all the potential to do that again. And if we ignore it, if we just pretend it's not there, Well, we run the risk of, well, catastrophe? If we're not purposefully vigilant, if we're too afraid to touch it or unload it or put it away or better, melt it down into a garden rake, it could hurt us again every time we stumble across it by accident. And if we don't take proper measures to secure it, it remains dangerous to so many others. Girls and women around the world who are still suffering under the absurdity of misogyny provoked by Christian family values. LGBTQ plus folks who are still under the impression that Christianity doesn't want them and therefore hasn't made any room for them in discussions of family and the ordering of human life. Children who are ill cared for by neglectful or domineering parents persons whose lives are valued so little that they are counted as workers and nothing more, only good for what their bodies can produce for the sake of the capital that is built on their backs. It's not only that we're responsible to prevent further damage done by this loaded gun, this toxic text, it's that I think it's high time the church owned up to damages past way past time for us to repent as an institution. For all the ways our religious faith has twisted marriages into traps for unsuspecting souls who are just trying to please God via an outdated and useless hierarchy of two. For all the ways our religious faith has propped up the most extreme injustices, the corrupt human imagination can conjure. For all the ways our religious faith has left out people who didn't fit the household codes we inherited and passed along. If we ignore the hard text, we can't express our true sorrow, take our full historical responsibility, honor the pain of those who have been hurt, including ourselves, and turn our energies toward repair. It's not good enough to say we've moved on or that these verses aren't Paul anyway, or that scripture isn't all that sacred. Whatever mechanism we each have employed to say why these words cannot hurt us anymore, they still have so much history of and so much potential for hurting others. The church's work now, is to spend as much energy as it takes for as long as it takes to repent and repair, repent and repair, repent and repair. And while we are repenting and repairing and building communities for the ordering of human life that do not depend on soul-crushing hierarchies to maintain stability, this text and others like it also invite our scrutiny of our present circumstances. Might it be that we are even now weakening the claims of the gospel we preach, diminishing the demands of our loyalty to the reign of God as people who enjoy citizenship and yet another empire with global power and influence? Could it be, for example, that we have bent Jesus's turn the other cheek pacifism? so that we can justify our country's protection by a military industrial complex that turns its labor through taxation into weapons loaded for unspeakable violence against our world neighbors? Could it be, for example, that we have made peace more or less with Pharaoh's economy, shaking our fists on the socials about living wages and unfair labor laws, but unwilling to sacrifice our comfort for the higher prices that follow higher wages? Could it be white Christians that we have nowhere near completed the work of repentance and reparation for the enslavement of our neighbor's ancestors by our own and the lingering racism that continues to value black and brown bodies so very little? Don't we know what it's like to say and do less than gospel to say and do less than the gospel thing because we're as thoroughly infected by an imperial system as Paul and his cohort were. (laughs) Just think about how ugly our US American ethics might look to our descendants a couple thousand years from now. Someone at Bible and Beer on Tuesday said, I don't know, what if we just read the good parts of this awful stuff and then put ourselves in there? Because the truth is, Hierarchy is not gone from our world. Power differentials still exist. Sometimes we're on the receiving end of someone else's dominance, but sometimes we find ourselves a little higher than the next guy. There are instructions here for how to do right when you're the one in charge. Like this. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly becomes partners, love your partner and demonstrate your love by your tender mercies when they are most vulnerable. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Becomes parents, caregivers, teachers, look for the beauty in the children in your care and help them so they will be encouraged in their flourishing. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven, becomes. Customers, go easy on the clerks and waiters. Clients, take care with the people who work to to serve you. Managers and administrators and scrum masters and CEOs, practice fair and equitable leadership. Remember Jesus, whose own way of being in charge was the habit of humble service to those who least expected it. It might or might not work for you. But at least this, church, don't look to the ink on the page of the Bible to say every single thing you need it to say for health and healing. It cannot carry that weight. It was never meant to carry that weight. But if by some miracle, after all these years, It's still pointing to some possibility beyond our own experience, beyond the brokenness of this world and our very own hearts. Let that be enough and turn the page on the parts that have brought you suffering. You, we, are grown-ass adults imbued with the spirit of the living Christ. That's why this text hurts so much. Because the Christ in you helps you know that God wants so much more than this. We know. We know. And we're going to be okay.
0: Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.